You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here's your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. My guest today is Shelby Fosithia. She's a grief guide, author, and a podcast host. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Where did you grow up? I grew up and spent the first uh, 21 years of my life in North Carolina. I often describe it as like an idyllic suburban childhood. And I think um, we can get into it, of course, but it's something that made my grief that much more jarring and shocking when my losses did inevitably happen because uh, the perfect life I knew was suddenly um, overturned. So you've grown up to become uh, a grief expert. I just wanted to find out the initial encounter with grief in your life. Yes, I often lovingly and not so lovingly refer to it as my four years of hell, where it was four years. So this this idyllic childhood all the way up until I was about 19 or 20. And then it was about four years of back to back to back unrelenting loss. The first couple of losses, I didn't recognize as loss at the time because they weren't actually somebody dying. They were losses of a previous life or a previous identity or a previous self. And the first one is that I came out as a queer person in a Southern state uh, to parents and a family that was Christian oriented. And in some ways it was okay. And in a lot of ways it wasn't. And so there was struggle with who I was and how I fit into the family. And they had many questions about who I was and what I was doing and why I was doing it. And there were a lot of very hard and difficult conversations about what would happen to me and where I would go when I died. So you will be going to hell, you will be separated from your family for eternity. A lot of arguments and a lot of a sense that like my nuclear family was dissolving and I was having to find family and other friends and in other people. And there's, there's grief in that. Um, I often say there's grief in being queer. There are lots of wonderful things in being queer, but there's grief in that as well. And then pretty shortly after that, uh, my father was diagnosed with two brain aneurysms, one on either side of his head and had to have uh, brain surgeries that were very extreme to my knowledge. And medical professionals told him that like, if this doesn't happen, you will die. And so having to suddenly reckon with his mortality and to watch him not be himself for a while uh, in recovery from brain surgery, because obviously I always say when they go digging around in your brain, something's bound to change. And so for him to not really know who he was or who we were, or to think he could do things that he couldn't, um, was frightening, especially when I knew my father to be a very stable person in my life. And then after about a year, year and a half after that, after the meal trains and the casseroles and the hospital visits had concluded from him, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so we got thrust back into this whirlwind of loss again. And this whole time I was in college. And so I was navigating between coming home and being away and this this grief of not being present, but what can you really do sitting in a waiting room? And so there were many questions coming up with this loss. And um, she went into remission and we thought, at last, at last, at last, we're in the clear. We don't have to do this anymore. We don't have to be afraid somebody's going to die. We've made it to the other side of a very hard thing. And in Thanksgiving 2013, I had just come back uh, from a trip with my classmates. I was in marketing school and I had gotten this big scholarship and gone to New York. And I thought, you know, I was this big girl on campus. And and the plane touched down. And I remember getting back to my apartment and getting a phone call from my dad. 
And my mom had been sick for a while, but that's kind of normal when after you've gone through chemo and your immune system is compromised. And, and we just thought she had pneumonia for a long time. And he called and he said, the cancer is back. It has metastasized to her lungs and to other parts of her body. Uh, she's going into surgery, but we're worried. And by the time we got to about mid-December, the doctors called and said, we've done all the surgeries we can do. We can we can buy you time, but we can no longer buy you a cure for for what you have. And they said, you should call in hospice and palliative care. And this was on December 19th. And they said we had anywhere from six weeks to six months with her. They really couldn't predict an accurate timeline, which is very normal at end of life. And she died in a week, the day after Christmas. And it, when I tell you it split my entire world open, it was, I was grieving everything from her literal, actual physical death, all the way to my place in my family, my role as her daughter, my faith in God and the goodness of the universe, my future, my past, because she was the great memory keeper of our family. And so it was the cherry on top of four years of nonstop back-to-back -back losses and medical crises. Um, and that that was my introduction to the world of grief. My God, you went through so much. That was a tough period of multiple losses. And what people don't understand is every loss shatters your sense of being. While dealing with school, how did you cope with all of that? In some ways, I'm really proud of, and in some ways, I'm not so proud of. <laughs> uh, so one of, the, one of the most noticeable things that happened right away is that I was like, my peers, my other 20, 21-year-olds have no idea what to do with me. And so they're like, just come to the party, have a drink, forget all about it, because that's how they would forget that they got an F on a test. <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily translate over to grief. And so I did a lot of um, avoiding and isolating and honestly sleeping. I would sleep for very, very long periods of time. And I would go to parties and I would drink and I would try to forget things and it wouldn't it wouldn't work. I would just end the evening feeling more sad and more in pain and then go home and sleep some more. And it wasn't so bad that I would consider it excessive. Um but it was I I learned pretty quickly that it wasn't a coping mechanism that would work for me. Something I was proud of though, and it wasn't something I asked for, so I guess I can't really take the credit for it. It was something one of my professors offered to me. But about two months after my mom's death, so she died over winter break, and then my sister and I were both in school, and we had to go back to school in January because that's what my mom wanted is please finish school. And came back in February or January, February, and one of my professors noticed I was just not present. I She she revealed to me later, she was like, it was like you just had a black cloud surrounding you and you're just sitting in the back row just existing. And she was like, I was afraid for you. And she called me out of class and she told me, she's like, if you are ever overwhelmed by grief, if you ever need a safe place to land, if you ever feel like you can't go to a class or somebody says something awful to you about your mom or her loss or her death or just get over it or God gives you anything you can't handle, just come to my office, just lay on the couch, I'll shut the door and the space is, is yours, is essentially the invitation she offered me. And the thing I am proud of and what I can take credit for mm. is saying yes to that offer. Yeah. Because I could have easily said, no, don't worry about it. I'm fine. Put on the face that a lot or the mask that a lot of grieving people put on. And the best thing I did for myself in that season was to say yes to her. And so on the days I couldn't go to class, I couldn't bring myself to go to work as a student receptionist on the days that people said something awful about my loss or my mom or or just didn't care, or it was like her birthday or a really hard day. That's that's where I would take refuge. And that's something I'm really proud of. 
your story and anyone who is dealing with significant uh, loss, uh, when you lose somebody that is so important to you, your entire life is shattered together. How did the pieces begin to fall back together for you? This might come across as cheesy, but I often picture it as like somebody standing from a very high place and smashing a plate. And the plate can never be a plate again, but you can take the pieces of the plating and glue it into something else. And it will always be broken. You can't unbreak the thing. And one of my very favorite authors, his name is Caleb Wilde. He wrote a book called Confessions of a Funeral Director. And he's like a sixth generation on both sides of his family funeral director. And he's he has this lovely chapter in his book that talks about how we are all mosaics of each other. And so we are compilations of the fragments of other people that live on through us. And so I, and there's a grief in that. There's grief in, I can never make the thing whole again. I will never experience it in its wholeness. When I truly deeply think about not being able to hug my mom again, which is one of my favorite and safest sensations in the whole world, or to hear her sing or to laugh when she tells a joke or to say her catchphrase in her voice, not somebody else's voice, um, and to watch movies with her and to just be present in the same room with her. There is a, there's just like a pocket of despair that, that never ends or that never leaves. It's something I carry around with me all the time. And there is an enormous amount of power and choice that both myself and I think all, all the people I work with, I teach people to claim this for themselves when they're grieving is you cannot see them in the form that they once were. You cannot feel them, taste them, touch them, experience them in, in that form that they once were. Where else are you insistent on finding them or seeing them or touching them or hearing them? And so one of the first exercises I often guide people through in my, my online course, Life After Loss Academy, is using the five senses to call in reminders of your person. And so every time I taste angel food cake, which is my mom's favorite dessert, my mother is present. Or every time I hear hymns played on a piano, I think of my mother. And so you can surround yourself with cues of their presence or cues of their memory. And then you kind of end up piecing together something that almost looks like them. And you can do this with people as well with, with their consent and permission. It's incredible. So my mother died. She had two sisters she was very close to. And then there's my sister and I. And we're four still living. And so to get all four of us in a room together, it's almost like north, south, east, west points of a compass. And in the center, when we get close enough together or tell the right joke or share the same story, it's almost as if we've conjured my mother in the center of a compass. And it's it's remarkable to experience. And so the shattering, for lack of better phrasing, almost becomes an invitation to creativity. It's like I'm left with all these pieces, but I don't have to leave the pieces back there where the loss occurred. I get to scoop them all up and figure out where they go now. I'm going to mix metaphors, but they're like little magnets on the great refrigerator of my life. It's like I'm putting little pieces of my mother everywhere. And then there's, you know, pictures of me and my wife now. And then there's pictures of our pets and, you know, pictures of news articles and things that are happening. And where where can I find her? Where do I insist on on having her pinned? in my life so that she's still present. It's intentional meaning making. I don't know that it ever really happens by accident. We have to be okay looking for signs and symbols or be okay inventing them ourselves. Sometimes people are like, 
does it matter if the sign or symbol is something I invented myself or does it need to feel magical like it was sent to me? And I think both are 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 perfect and lovely as long as they're meaningful for you. That's really powerful. You're good with imagery. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you use imagery, uh, you know, to, to construct meaning. Uh, but also sometimes people think that, okay, I've lost my loved one. And can my can I be my former self? And you're, through your imagery, you're telling us that you may never be that person, but the pieces put together are also good enough and could be even an invitation to a more powerful life. And that's incredible to see. And something I love um, telling people, I've shared this on another podcast recently, but one of my favorite tools that I use, I call it the Oprah tool, because... Um, she had this section and when she had print magazines, which I remember, and I love magazines. And every time in an airport, I still buy an Oprah magazine because it reminds me of my mother. So this is another fragment of her that I, that I force <laughs> into being. So you go to an airport, you check into the gate, you go get an Oprah magazine, and then you sit and pretend you're reading it with your mother. Um, but she'd had the call, this column in the end of all her magazines called what I know for sure. And she would say something that she was certain about whether she was like, I know, you know, it's possible to find peace in this holiday season or our friendships are what make us whole or whatever her kind of guiding statement was for the month she would put in there. And there's a myth that grieving people tell themselves when a major loss happens, whether it's a death, divorce, diagnosis, other major loss, is that grief or loss has taken everything from me. All of it is gone. None of it remains. And there is truth to that and also, what I guide grieving people to do is to find the first shreds of stability in life after loss by reminding themselves what is still true about you. And sometimes it's funny, and sometimes it's very practical, and sometimes it's very small. But I guide them through this exercise of what do you know for sure? What is still true about your life after loss? I hated olives before my mother died. I still hate olives. That's still true. Loss did not take that from me. And it's really funny, but some people are like, I'm still in, I'm still creative, or I still love this band, or I still drive a red pickup truck, or I still live at this address, or I still have green eyes. There are parts of yourself that remain. And so the story of everything is gone, I have lost all of who I am, my entire identity has gone missing, is 98% of it is gone. Most of it has been shattered half of it has gone missing. It changes the language a little bit so it it doesn't feel so powerless so that you feel as if there there is some of you that remains. And even if it's, I hate olives, that is enough to build something on top of it. And, and the thing too that loss can't take from you is like, I still have memories of that time we baked cookies together. Yes, I will never bake cookies again with her in the future and there's grief in that. And I still have memories that get carried for what i know for sure is nobody can take that memory from me and so there's there's this lovely bridge or transition that helps you build stability when there's this fear of i must grieve my entire self you go, you're going to grieve about 98% of yourself <laughs> um, <laughs> but there are pieces of you that that get to stay and that loss can't take from you and it takes a little bit of the power out of loss and gives it a little bit of it back to you well said well, that would take a little break when we come back, we'll talk about Shelby's book, Your Grief, Your Way. Thank you for listening. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. 
Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. We continue our conversation with Shelby. Before the break, you really gave us a powerful uh, context to why you are who you are as a grief specialist. You were vulnerable with us. You shared your stories of death and intense grief. Was that then the motivation for the book, Your Grief, Your Way? Oh, that's actually a really fun story because that was an invitation that fell out of the sky is what happened <laughs> with that one. Oh. So I had, I, I had no intention after my mother's death of pursuing grief work, which I think is true for a lot of people. And I know this is called the hospice chaplain, so, but I don't know any five-year-old who's like, I want to be a chaplain when I grow up. <laughs> like no. no one, no one goes in, very few people, I'll say very few people go in wanting to work in the field of death and dying or grief. And then some people say we are called to this work. Some people fall into it by accident, which I feel is is kind of what happened to me. So the very, the very, very short version of this story is that I felt very lost after my mom died. I couldn't read. I started going to the public library because it was something I remember doing with her. And I was like, well, she'll guide me towards the books I'm supposed to read. And all I wanted to do is go to the grief section. And so I was reading books about grief. I started listening to podcasts about grief. And I started sharing what I learned on social media and enough people just in my friends and family group were like, wow, you're actually teaching me something just based on other people's words, what I was reading from other people that you should do something with this. And so I started a Facebook page and then I started going live. And then I was like, I, I should turn this into a podcast. So I did. And then podcast listeners started tuning in from around the world, which was nuts. And then they said, you should write a book. And I was like, I have a story I would like to write a book about. And so I self-published my first book. And with your grief, your way, and this happened over the course of about four or five years, but with your grief, your way, it was January, 2020. So before we really knew what COVID was, I was working my day job at a flower shop. So I'm a florist on the side when I'm not doing grief work. And I got an email during my shift from someone at Penguin Random House. And she said, hey, we have this idea for a grief book that's a non-religious daily devotional because there are many God-oriented grief devotionals in the world. But again, people have complicated relationships with God, kind of turns them off, may not be helpful. And we are looking for somebody to write it. And this is a total divine, I don't know how this happened moment. But she said, this person from Penguin Random House recommended you. And it was somebody who sat two seats in front of me in high school biology. And she just, she remembered I did grief work. She remembered I'd already written a book and she just tossed my name into a hat and they picked me apparently, whether it's from looking at my books or my social media or listening to my podcast. I don't know how they chose me. I, I still do not understand or know how that happened, but I immediately said yes, because the opportunity to work with a publishing house as big as Penguin was like a life stream of mine. And then they said, but here's the thing, we're doing a new experiment where we want to see how fast we can get a book to market. So generally between the, and this is kind of nitty gritty publishing stuff, but generally the time between you sign the contract of the book and when it actually is on a shelf and you can see it is anywhere between like a year and a half to five years, sometimes even more for really research intensive books or really, really topical books. And they were like, we're trying a new experiment to see if we can get a book from contract to shelf in nine months. So essentially a pregnancy. We are getting this from you signing the contract to it being on the shelf in September, go. And then two months later, COVID happened. So I signed the contract for this book. I'm ready to, to start you know, working on this. And I had 
been let go from my job because not a lot of people order flowers when, when, uh, well, crises are happening. There's a lot of sympathy flowers, which was sad to say. Um, but I had a lot of free time all of a sudden to write and edit a book. And there are these little teeny, like daily devotional passages and they're sistered together. So if you read a a passage we're recording today on November 2nd. If you read the passage on November 2nd, the entry that comes after it will go with it somehow. And so every other entry is a quote by some famous person about grief or loss, and then my thoughts about it, or some guiding thoughts about it. And then the next passage will always be some sort of practical exercise. And so the the cool part about writing this is I got to come up with every grief ex- exercise that had ever been helpful to me, and then I got to research every grief quote that had ever helped me in some way. And then I had to match them together. It was like one of those exercises you do in um, kindergarten or first grade where they put like a picture of a giraffe and then the word giraffe on opposite sides of the paper, but they put them in different places. So you have to draw the line to connect them across the page, like a diagonal page. And it was like, they were all jumbled up. And so my mission in, in writing your grief your way was to pair them together in a way that was meaningful. And then to also make sure that on these major grief dates for so many of us, Valentine's Day, Christmas Day, uh, Hanukkah season, Halloween, like these things that influence and shape our grief throughout the year that I was really speaking to these major days too. So talk to, I mean, you've talked to us about this structure. What was the rationale behind this incredible structure? The the rationale and the thing that got me on the bandwagon super fast in, in saying yes to this project is that it's short. Like grief books are incredible and I've read so many of them. Like my whole bookshelf back here is entirely grief books and I have even more over here that you can't see. But but so many of them are not for early grief. They are not designed for people who can't read very much every day and don't want to necessarily learn like psychological concepts. Like don't talk to me about what cognitive behavioral therapy is or how it changes my brain. Like I need to get through today. Yeah. I need to understand how to survive until tomorrow or cope with this hard thing until the next day or get through their death anniversary or get through this work party where I know they're going to be mentioned or something like that. It's it's digestible, 300 words or less, either a quote that can ground you or a tip that can guide you. Like it is, it is very practical boots on the ground comfort at a time when you need it. And then when you're ready to read long form paragraphs or chapter books or or memoirs of people's grief experiences, you go right ahead. And you can read them at the same time if you want, but the ability to flip open a book, even if it's not to today's entry, because you can start it at any time. It's not, you don't have to start on January 1st and go through the year. I encourage people to play book roulette with it. I'm like, just flip it open. Even if it's in March, doesn't matter. Just read whatever the passage is and whatever it is will be helpful. Um, that that sort of freedom, it's almost like drawing a card from a deck of cards in, in book form. And that that simplicity and that shortness and that brevity is so necessary when your head is so full with grief. Yeah. So it's like a devotional book. So one devotion a day. What is the power mm-hmm. of that when someone is dealing with grief? Well I, well, I like that. Nobody's ever asked me that question before. I think part of it is building rhythm or building consistency or building stability, which a lot of grieving people, including myself, feel they do not have in the aftermath of a loss. If somebody had handed me a devotional, so many people brought books over after my mom died, but they they were huge. They were these big conceptual follow us from chapters one to 10 and we'll guide you through the system, whatever. I was like, I can't, get, I can't even get there with you. If somebody had handed me a devotional that had nothing to do with God, because God was not my friend at the time, I would have eaten that up. Like it, it would have been 
here's the one thing in the world I know anchors me and I read it for three minutes every morning. And to have something like that in a season of your life when it feels like everything else is shattered to your words or everything else is chaos or everything else is out of your control. I don't know how I'm going to feel when I go shopping for groceries later, but I do know I'm going to spend three more three minutes this morning reading this book. And, and I will do it again tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. It starts to build like these seeds of predictability in a life that feels very unpredictable. And that is so securing and so grounding at a time when it feels the world is not. I like that because what people don't understand is to recover a sense of normalcy or a sense of healing from grief, it is work. It's, a, it's an intentional work. We can't just sit there and all of a sudden your grief is gone. So these daily devotions, uh, they, they prompt a sense of work to work out your grief one piece at a time, one day at a time, one small 10 minute of reflection. It really, it keeps you grounded and it is really helpful. So thank you for making it like that. Yeah, well, and even if you don't do it, like even if the exercise in there is not relevant to you today or not something you feel you have the energy to do or not something that that aligns with your grief or your life, even just knowing that, oh, that's an interesting idea or, oh, it's neat knowing other people can do that or in six months, I might feel like I'm able to do that. One of my favorite exercises, because I remember this very clearly from my from my mother's death, was, was canceling all of the mail that came to the house in her name. Going back to magazines, I can't believe how much I'm talking about magazines this interview. <laughs> but as a medium, I just love them. But so she subscribed to all these magazines about arts and crafts and Oprah and, you know, home HGTV decorating, whatever she just subscribed to. And after her death, it was almost traumatizing feels like a big word, but to see her name in the mailbox and to know I could not walk up to her in her favorite chair and give her her magazines that had arrived was very just like grief activating for me. And I remember I went to visit my father and he had just kept this pile of mail that she'd received. And we're not talking medical bills or things that you would need to open and address. We're talking like subscriptions or flyers or favorite restaurant gift card that you get in the mail, things that you can unsubscribe from. I I remember he was like, I'm just overwhelmed by this. I don't know what to do. And I remember I opened the magazines to like the editorial page when back when you'd have to contact them either through phone number or through the website to unsubscribe. And I made a list of every magazine and every phone number that I'd have to call to get off a list. And I just dedicated one day to making all those calls. And I said, it's going to take about six weeks because they have to like send it through their channels, but you will stop receiving mail with her name on it. And the relief that that brought all of us as a family was profound. And so I put that in my book of like, if you are receiving mail for your person and it's really hard for you, it's a, it's a three-step, you make a list, you call the people, and then you stop receiving the mail. And it, it's something a lot of people don't think, and nobody told me how to do this. It was something I had to learn through my own grief experience, but to have that as an exercise in the book, whether you use it today or you're like six months from now, I'm ready to tackle the mail thing, turn back to it. It's still there. It's waiting for you. And it's, and it's an easy thing that can offer you so much relief in your grief. Thank you. With that, we'll take a little break. Again, my guest is Shelby Forsythia. She's the author of Your Grief, Your Way. We'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. 
I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation with Selby. Uh, are there some passages you could read for our listeners? Yes, um, I would love to start with this one here on September 25th, which I am told is your birthday. <laughs> um, and this is a quote passage. So there's every other passage is a quote, and every other passage is uh, some sort of practical exercise. So September 25th says, You have to love, you have to feel. It is the reason you are here on earth. You are here to risk your heart. And this is a quote from Louise Edrick. And the kind of commentary that I wrote underneath it says, while numbness is often one of the first experiences grievers have after the loss of a loved one, some grieving people choose to adopt numbness for the long term, using it to dull the pain of their loss, but also joy and the connection of love. It can be tempting to use numbness to shield yourself from feeling grief, but you'll soon find that love is blocked out too. When you sense yourself numbing out, allow yourself to come back to the world, a world that does contain heartbreaking pain, yes, but also heart-mending love. Incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I like the just topic a, Just of a numbness. gentle invitation. Yes. Yeah. Wow. A lot of people, grieving people, um, mention that word as a part of their experiences. I just feel numb. Yeah. And how how to become unnumb. And I'll actually read the passage immediately after that because this is then the practical exercise that follows that. So if you open the book and you're like, well, I read about numbness the day before. Now what can I do with it or about it? Because people are like, that's great, but how? <laughs> <laughs> Which I also face in my grief. People are like, just, just come back to the world. And I'm like, what does that mean? So here's what that means. September 26 says, when we can't define emotions with words, it can be helpful to define them with feelings. The next time you're grappling with an intense emotion you can't seem to put your finger on, close your eyes and ask yourself, where am I feeling this emotion in my body? Does this emotion have a temperature, weight, or texture? Is there pain associated with this emotion? If so, what kind? For example, stabbing, scratching, ripping, or throbbing. Then allow yourself to fully feel and take in the bodily sensations of that emotion. Letting yourself feel emotion and notice it helps you digest it and release it from your body so that a different emotion can take its place. You may not know what anger feels like in the aftermath of loss, but you sure can zero in on, quote, that tingly burning feeling at the base of my skull. Uh -huh. And so to, I love this because like people, people are like, I'm numb, but I don't have words for what I'm feeling. And so things like talk therapy aren't always the most helpful or sitting down with like a spiritual advisor, or even a chaplain is like, I don't know. I don't know how to tell you what I'm feeling. But to say something like, I can I can tell you where it is in my body, or I, for me, I felt like somebody ripped me in half from like my abdomen. And so I felt like there was just a big gaping hole in my like solar plexus right below my rib cage. And to say that, I'm like, I could not tell you that that is despair. I would not name it as despair because I don't have a familiarity with that word and that emotion, but I can tell you what it feels like. And that gets you closer to being able to narrate the experience of your grief, which is so important to to ground it, to make sense of it. It's so helpful for our brains to wrap words around what we're going through and to start by saying, where is it in the body can get you closer to, to definition and then to, yeah, some kind of healing or resolution with it. The good thing I like about your book, your grief, your way, um, I like that there's a sense of permission. You know, I think, you know, there's a sense of an invitation and a sense of permission to, to just work this at your own pace, in your own rhythm, in your own way. And here's just a few prompts, you know, so what is the power of permission 
in helping somebody who is dealing with grief? love that you asked this question because my first book, I don't know if you can see this, is called Permission to Grieve. Um, and this is self-published. Full disclaimer, if you choose to buy this, there are swear words in the first two chapters. If that's not cool with you, don't buy it. Um, <laughs> those are the most negative reviews I ever get for it are people who were not expecting swear words, but I was reenacting the moment I heard about my mother's death. Um, permission is important because for me, and in the work that I do, it's the opposite of resistance. And society, the society we live in right now, and I'm speaking mostly about like Eurocentric westernized society as you define it, encourages us or or treats us as if we must fight grief and overcome it and battle it and grapple with it and almost like clear it like a hurdle that we have to jump over. Like we're these grand athletes. And if we can't jump over the thing and have it be in the rearview mirror, then something's wrong with us. And there are, there are other ways to do it, which no one taught me. It's almost like I had to learn it for myself. And so many grievers do have to learn it for themselves. And I also teach this in my online courses that one of the number one things that will change your relationship with grief is to perceive it not as a combative relationship where I'm just trying to get grief off of me or get grief away from me or get grief in the rearview mirror and I'm way up here having made progress, but to move grief from a position of fighting and combat to a position of being beside each other, moving forward in the same direction. And this is scary because all of a sudden, instead of sitting across the table from grief, which is a position of distance, there's a table between you, grief comes and sits on, on your side of the booth in the diner. And so now all of a sudden you're looking at the same menu. You're you're asking grief what its preferences are. You're asking grief how much it wants to eat and when and can we afford it? And you, all of a sudden you consider grief's opinion as like a living entity in your life and you allow it to have a voice. And there's there is a great amount of surrender in this and allowing grief to show up and to say no, we can't necessarily go to the grocery store without crying, but we need to eat. So now what are we going to do? We're going to make a plan. We're going to, I teach people how to do this. I call it crafting an escape route. So if you go to public places and you know that your grief is going to be activated, how do you get out and get out safely? Or how do you pause and take a moment and then get out safely? Um, and for you to be almost in conversation with grief as opposed to in combat with grief is, is such a powerful way, not only to change the way you move forward into the future, but also to conserve your energy. As a grieving person, it takes so much work to fend grief off and to fight it and to resist it and push it away. I often call it keeping it locked in the basement, but to keep it down there or keep the mask on of like, I'm fine. And then grief's doing whatever it's doing. Um, and it takes so much less energy to allow grief to exist and then to collaborate with it. It's a, it's a different kind of energy and it's less taxing for grieving people who are already using so much energy to exist and stay alive and to survive in a world that is new and unfamiliar and hard. And yeah. So how, how can our listeners get a hold of you or a hold of your book? Oh, sure. So everything ever is at shelbyforsythia.com. That's where the books live. That's where the courses live. That's where working with me one-on-one -on -one lives. If you want me to come speak on your show and you happen to have a podcast, you can hire me to do that there, or you can invite me to do that there. And that's also where uh, all of my social media are. So you can come hang out with me on Instagram or Facebook or YouTube, wherever you feel comfy uh, engaging with my work. I'd love to see you there. What are your final thoughts? Loss hands us 
a life that if you ask us, we would never want to live. Like we would never, for the most part, we would never walk into loss or walk into our grief willingly. And it is still possible to love the life that loss has forced you to live. And it seems impossible at first, or or how, how could that ever be true? You don't have to figure it all out today. This is the first thing I'll say. Um, and also, there can be, when you're ready to see it, an invitation inside of grief to, as we talked about earlier, to be creative, to ask new questions, to ask, I cannot go back and change what happened, but what can I make of this? That is beautiful. And if it's not beautiful, is it functional? Can I, can I, can I work with it? Is it good enough? And finding a sort of peace in that, and then a sort of peace in yourself for having been the person who made that from some really awful thing that happened. Shelby, thank you. Thank you so much. So I'm really honored to have been here. Your invitation also dropped out of the sky, and it was so fun to be in your presence today. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. That was Shelby Forsythia. She's the author of Your Grief, Your Way. You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Our project manager is Melissa Caprellian. Our studio engineer is Brian Mackinder, and I'm Sole Bema. Thank you for listening. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.